Thank you very much. It's a joy indeed to be here with you. And uh, sometimes you think speakers have the most lofty, holy thoughts racing across their minds when just before they get ready to speak. I don't know why this happened to me, but as, um, as we were going through uh, the introductions and that kind of thing, I thought of my, my grandson. I've got four grandsons, and, uh, uh, but my oldest son has three boys in the middle of them is Miles. And I don't know why I thought about this, but uh, Miles is a trip. He's a piece of work. He is uh, five years old, but about a year ago when he was four years old, he, uh, he makes his dad call me all the time, and he's the, he calls me Papa. So he makes his dad call me all the time. So he gets on the phone, he says, Papa, Papa. I said, what, Miles? He says, Papa. I said, what, Miles? He says, Papa. I said, what? He said, what's up, dog? I don't know why I thought about that. But he says, Nothing to do with the message, but I thought it might edify you anyway. But uh, it, it is indeed a joy to be here with you. I wrestled in prayer about what to share with you uh, when you have a one-shot deal like this and we're all together like this. I wrestled in my heart, what should I share? And there's a passage of Scripture that I just could not get away from that I want to talk about today. And I need to set it up in this way. I am terribly, terribly, terribly concerned about the cultural Christianity that has us by the throats. I'm very concerned about the processes of Christianity that's replacing authentic, vibrant, life-changing, transforming Christianity that's presented in the Bible. So I want to take a few minutes today and talk about recapturing your first love, recapturing your first love. But before I do, I'm going to ask every head to be bowed, please. Father, we thank you so very much for the grace of God. Thank you for each person that's listening today. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for who you are and for what you've done in our lives. Thank you, Father, that we're not here by accident. Lord, I understand that in an auditorium this size and other people are listening and watching, that our minds are diverted. Some of us are having a hard time concentrating. Frankly, some don't even want to be here. But I ask you, Lord Jesus, that you will arrest our attention today. Speak to us. Take us to where you want us to be. We love you, Lord, and thank you for all that you mean to us. In Jesus' name, amen. My wife and I, on May 22nd, will have been married for 20, I mean for 37 years. And she is, yeah, she, she deserves combat pay. She's wonderful. She's the absolute joy of my life. I met her on almost a rebound situation. When I was in undergraduate school, the summer between my junior and senior year, uh, actually, but summer between my, my freshman and sophomore year, I broke up with my high school sweetheart. Uh, girlfriend kicked me to the curb. That was not a very good thing. And and uh, this happened about a week and a half or two weeks before I went back to school. I was in my dorm room praying. I went to a Christian college and I was on my knees praying. And this is a true story. I said, God, no more women. Uh, they mess you up. I'm going to stay focused on my studies. I'm not going to be distracted or deterred in any way. I'm going to stay locked in. And I was getting carried away with this whole prayer. I get up off my knees, true story, walk out of the dorm room on my way down to the main administration building. All the while, my mind rehearsing this deep, stalwart, focused prayer that I prayed. 
not to be distracted or deterred in any way. I'm going to stay focused. And people who know me, when my mind is made up, I can be fairly focused. And so I'm, I'm going down the street. Get to the doors of the main administration building, open those doors, and there at the top of the stairs are these two brown legs. And I said, Lord, what have we here? Uh, learned a very important lesson, never make foolish vows. And those legs belong to Karen, who's now my wife. And uh, my mama taught me to be hospitable, and she was a stranger on campus, and so I just wanted to show her around. And I've been showing her around for 37 years. I tell you this story because often in the Bible, when God wants to get our attention, he will use the imagery of marriage. as one of the most incredible, compelling illustrations of what it means to have a vital, vibrant relationship with God. Great marriages don't become great marriages based upon great feelings. Great marriages become great marriages based upon intentionality. Uh, you, 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 you don't just sit around feeling like you want to have a great marriage and it happens. No. Great marriages are nurtured and developed through the discipline and sacrifice of love. There's intentionality. Now, I'm going someplace with this. Just as marriages can fall apart, so also can your walk in relationship with God fall apart. You know, great marriages, a great relationship begins with passion. You're in love, L-U-V. You can't wait to be with each other. You make all kinds of sacrifices, and so you, you, you do whatever it takes, and, and you're just glad to be with each other. doesn't make any difference where you live in. doesn't make any difference whether you're eating Roman, uh, ramen noodles. It doesn't make any difference with that stuff. You're, you're in love. Then you say, I do, and realize that you did. And you understand you just can't sit around kissy face all day. Somebody's got to go to work. And, and so you, you end up, uh, you know, pursuing other things. And if you're not careful... Passion can disintegrate a little bit to neglect. Now, bear with me. I promise you I'm going someplace with this. It can disintegrate to neglect. You don't mean to neglect each other. Life just happens. And unless there's some intervention, unless there's a little bit of a wake-up call, unless there's a reorientation of your priorities, you go from passion to neglect to the very dangerous stage called boredom. That is at that point with just a little accumulation of little unresolved conflicts, misplaced priorities. You didn't resolve these things. And all of a sudden, that person that you felt so passionate about represents the problem. And there's hostility issues happens every day. And unless there's some kind of intervention, some kind of major wake-up call, You've gone from passion, neglect, boredom to departure. That's the reason why as a pastor, I talk to couples all the time who are ready to tear each other apart and they, they, they want to rip up the relationship. And when you a la carte the issues, there's not, often there's not one big issue. Often there's not one big issue, but it's the accumulation of stuff that has replaced the intimacy. And I promise you that happens every day in the Christian life. All the time. Jesus had something like that in mind when he told John on the Isle of Patmos 
to pick up his pen because he wanted to dictate a letter to a church. And I think out of all the seven letters in Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3, this letter to the church at Ephesus is a portrait and a warning sign to Bible-believing Christians in our culture at this juncture of the 21st century. Tells John, I've got something that I want to say to this church. Something that I want to say to them. By the way, parenthetically, all seven, with the exception of the letter to the church of Philadelphia, follows this template. There's commendation, there's condemnation, and then there's correction. But listen to what Jesus says to the church at Ephesus. Tells John, pick up your pen. I want to dictate a letter to this church. He says in verse 2, this is Jesus speaking, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. Now, I want you to notice how Jesus commends this church. He commends them. First of all, he commends them for right behavior. You know, I first read these words, I'm saying, there certainly can't be anything wrong with this church at Ephesus. Because Jesus, in essence, gives them a standing O. They're wonderful. He commends them for right behavior. That's brought out by the verbs there. You're enduring, you're putting up with stuff, you're patient, you're hanging in there, you know. Uh, you, you got right behavior. There's no protracted immorality here. He's not coming down on them because they're... They're lying and they're sleeping around and, and, and they're, they're, they're addicted to pornography or, or this kind of thing. He's not saying any of that stuff. In fact, he's saying, look, you guys are squeaky clean. Hip, hip, hooray. He commends them for right behavior. Secondly, he commends them for right beliefs. There's that one little line that he says in the New American Standard Version. It says, you put the test. Those who call themselves apostles and are not. The not-so-subtle inference is this. You have a right standard of truth and belief by and through which you can evaluate that which is false. Now, check it out. I mean, isn't that all there is to the Christian life? Right behavior, right beliefs? There are no heretics here. You believe right, and you're behaving right. What else is there? I mean, yo, I mean, if I, if, you know, if I moved to a new city and was checking out churches, I want to go to a place where I check out the consistency of the lives of the people, that there's no flagrant hypocrisy going on here. I'd like that. And I take a look at their doctrinal statement to make sure it squares with historic biblical Christianity. These folks pass the test. He commends them. You've got to understand something. Uh, you know, our churches today are much larger than these churches back then. And this church at Ephesus did not meet in one big building. My research is accurate. It probably was a series of house churches dotted around Ephesus with maybe 10, 12, 15 people in it. There was an elder that read these letters, and so here you have an elder over a house church that's reading, and that's why they call them circular letters, reading this letter from the mouth of the master himself. 
And just, just, just picture yourself sitting there. The elder reads, Jesus commending us to right behavior, right beliefs. If you're like me, I'd be hitting my wife Karen and say, you know, this ain't half bad. We're doing okay. But then Jesus himself says, see these words. Six searing words. But I, the Lord of history, Jesus, but I have this against you. He's, I got a problem with you. I got a problem with you. You go, whoa, 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 what, what problem? I'm behaving right and I'm believing right. What possible problem could you have with me? He commends them for right behavior, right beliefs, but then he says, I have this against you. Now measure these words. Lazy preachers have butchered this familiar passage. Listen to what he says. I'm quoting it from the New American Standard Version. He says, here's the problem, clear statement of the problem. But I have this against you. Listen to what he says. Listen, listen. You have left your first love. He did not say you have lost your first love. He said you have, you, you have, you have, you, you have left your first love. Now, he doesn't say don't, don't behave right and don't believe right. No, 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 do, do, do all of that. But here's your problem. You have made right behavior, right beliefs, the essence of your relationship with God. And in the process, that has become your surrogate intimacy with him. You have left your first love. There's a significant difference between losing something and leaving something. A couple of years ago, I had a, a real busy day. I was scheduled to fly out of town later that afternoon to speak at one of these stadium events. And I was really excited about that. I was heading up this strategy there for the city of Atlanta. It's a TV special that we're pulling off to share the gospel. And some people from out of town were coming in to meet about that. And uh, I was just fired up about it. And so um, I get up and I... I uh, uh, get all my stuff together, and I had to, you know, I had my bags packed for the airport and all the stuff for the meeting and everything. I get halfway to my office. You ever had that feeling? I know you've had it. You ever had that feeling? What am I forgetting? I'm forgetting something, and I'm doing this mental checklist. I got my, you know, I got my bags. I got stuff for the meeting. I got that cell phone. I got the computer. I got all this stuff, and I, and I got halfway to the office and said, oh, man, I left my wallet on the dresser. I was driving without identification. Here's the point. Nothing on my schedule that day was evil or wrong. It was all right. It was all advanced the kingdom. Now listen to this. Listen to this. In my desire to do right stuff, good stuff, I had left something very significant. You have left your first 
love. First love. The word first there is not to be taken as a, uh, let's say, I'd say this, not to be taken as a sequential term for first. This, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this, then this. No, it is to be taken as the essence term for first. That which establishes all other priorities. Let me, let me explain this way. You know, you got to be careful listening to guys like me. Sometimes we say things that are not true. And I used to say this for years. And You ever say something and you scratch your head and you go, what's wrong with that statement? Let me give you one of the statements that you have probably heard conference speakers say. Anybody that's ever talked about time management or talked about budgeting or talked about stewardship, they often make this statement which technically is not true, and you'll see why. They'll often say, I can tell what's most important to you by looking at your calendar and your checkbook. Now, the checkbook, that might be true. But your calendar, that ain't necessarily so. It's not necessarily so. The amount of time that you spend on something is not necessarily an accurate reflection of its priority to you. For example, I'll use marriage as another illustration. When you get married, you'll be spending a huge portion of your time working. If not, you'll be homeless. So, you know, you, you'll, you'll spend a lot of time doing that. Sometimes you'll spend a lot of time traveling away from your family. I've traveled 50% of the time for over 30 years. Ah, but here's the deal. My wife has veto rights over my schedule. It's not the amount of time, but what determines how I use my time. If Karen told me last night, honey, I need you here at the house, something's wrong, I would have called up here at Liberty and said, look, thank you very much for the opportunity to come and speak. Our ministry will reimburse you or any, any of the inconvenience, that kind of thing. I would have stayed home. Jesus says, don't stop believing right and behaving right. But in all this activity and doing, you've fallen more in love with the processes of Christianity than, it, than the author of Christianity. It is no sign of your walk with God because you go to every Bible study you can go to. There's no, that is no measure of your vibrant Christianity because you pass out gospel tracts. You love what you do more than you love me. That's what Jesus is saying. Listen to me. Listen to me. Christianity is the life of Christ. It's the pursuit of that passionate relationship with him. And, and please don't misunderstand me. It's not loving theology more than you love Jesus. As much as I love and will die for the truth of the Word of God, the Bible is accurate because it wants to give us an accurate picture of the God that we worship. This is you. You got kind of cute, haven't you? You ain't sleeping around. That's good. Memorize a lot of the Bible. That's wonderful. But you have left your first love. The word love there is agape. We have trivialized that word. Now, you've got to be careful when you get too cute and try to say phileo, agape, sorge, and all these different... Well, 
Honestly, in the Bible, sometimes the writers will use agape and phileo interchangeably, so I don't always buy the argument that agape always means unconditional love. Generally speaking, it does. But he, he's talking about when the church was started. I don't have time to go through this today, but sometimes read Acts chapter 19. And for those of you who would like to dig a little bit deeper, read, read the article in the International Standard Bible Encyclopedia on Ephesus when Paul showed up. It was one, excuse the expression, hell hole. In fact, he stayed there longer than any other place. And he did more dramatic miracles there. Why? Because these people were in, were in a cesspool. You talk about temple prostitution, homosexuality, things running rampant all over the place. And when Jesus dictates this letter to these people, fast forward, we're not doing that stuff anymore, it's as if he said, hey, you forgot where you came from. You forgot when you were coming out of those pagan temples after sleeping with these folks, you walked outside of the temple and there you saw Paul preaching the good news of the gospel and you were liberated. Not by your content, by the way, not by your theology, by the way, but by the person of Jesus Christ who invaded your life, broke the chains of sin, set you free. And now you've become a cultural Christian. You love what you do and what you don't do and your rules and regulations and how proud you are that you are very systematic and you understand the constructs of Christianity. It's as if he said, where am I? Where am I? Where am I? Nothing is worse than professional Christians. Nothing is more nauseating than rote, regurgitated Christians. All the form, all the right answers, all the conforming to the rules, but cold, callous, lifeless hearts. You have left. You've left it. You, you, you didn't intend to do it. No, you did not intend to do it. You were like Crawford. You were so excited about what you were doing for God and what was happening, and it was all noble and great. You didn't mean to do it, but you left your wallet on the dresser. Well, what do you do? He commends them, right behavior, right beliefs. By the way, he says, don't stop. <laughs> but don't make the outcome the destination. I'm sorry, I should have said, don't make the destination the outcome. Do that. Then he kind of condemns them. He said, you know, I got a, I got a, I got a problem with you. Mm-hmm, yeah. You're the good one over here. I got a problem with the good one over here. I got, I got, I got a problem with you. Well, what do you do? He says, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds 
you did at first. I'm just going to do a high flyby and I'll be closed here. But basically, he says, I want you to do three things. He says, you, you got an alignment problem. You, you don't have a content problem. You got all the right stuff in you. But it's, it's kind of jacked up, as my kids would say. It's kind of messed up, you know. You get, it's in the wrong places in you. you. You got the content and behavior stuff here where heart relationship with Jesus should be here. Content and behavior flow out of that. But you made the content and the behavior, the relationship. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to remember, I want you to repent, and I want you to redo. The word remember, remember, is a very interesting Greek word. It's a double entendre. It means both to recall and to rehearse. This passive and active at the same time. It's almost as he said, hey, hey, time out. Hold it, hold it, stop, stop, pull over, pull, pull over. It's kind of like in a, in a basketball game when, 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 when the team is not executing, but it goes, goes, hold it, time, 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 come on, time. You kiss him in the heart, what are you doing? That's not the game. This is what we're about. Time. Pull over, pull over. Go back. Go, go all the way back. Oh, way, way, way back here. Remember when you first came to know me? Remember how clean you felt? Remember how you used to lay awake at night and say, Jesus, I love you? You didn't understand this stuff, but I was so sweet to you. Yeah. Go back. Now, I want you to pull that fresh memory and place it in your heart right now. Let me tell you something. Don't you ever get so cute in your Christianity that you're too sophisticated for Calvary. The cross is everything to you. And Jesus is everything to you. And he says, I want you to repent. That's a Greek word, metanoia. Historically, the gospel of uh, the doctrine of repentance is a broad doctrine. It, it means not just, metanoia literally means with the change of mind, literally. Um, um, but, but broadly speaking, when you talk about repentance, it means a change of direction. It, it, involves, it involves remorse. It involves new habit patterns of behavior. It involves overcoming. All of that's under the umbrella of repentance. However, I prefer the literal meaning of metanoia, uh, of repentance here, which is change your mind. I think literally Jesus is saying to him, I want you to change your mind about how you do Christianity. Repent about your thinking. And then thirdly, redo. He says, do again the deeds you did at first. I scratched my head when I was studying that portion. I was trying to figure out what in the world is he talking about, and then lights came on. 
I'll tell you this story and I'll wrap up. My wife and I, we, uh, we're empty nesters. It's just absolutely marvelous. No offense, but it's wonderful. I tell our kids, go means get out. Stay out. I'll send you a check if you promise not to come home too often. But anyway, that's it. Uh, that didn't go over too well here at Liberty. Anyway, um, we, we hang out and that kind of thing. A couple of years ago, it was one of those busy stretches where we missed our weekly date night where we'd go out and eat and that kind of thing. We missed it about a couple of weeks, just my crazy schedule in and out of town. So I was at the office and um, she called and we were talking about something else and then she said to me, you know, she said, well, honey, uh, we haven't hung out. And I said, oh, I got to go to Chicago, honey, and when I come back, we'll do it. And when I hung up the phone, I said, that was lame. And uh, um, so I said to my assistant at the time, Scotty, I need to leave. I just, can we rearrange these appointments and stuff? I just need to rearrange things. And I went home, and on the way home, I stopped by the florist, got us some flowers, and, uh, and we hung out. Don't go there. Don't, I you a little. Don't, no, no. There are residual benefits. I understand, but don't go there. You're messing things up here by laughing. Um, here's the point I want to leave with you. There was an old song that used to go, you don't send me flowers anymore. When is the last time you just hung out with Jesus? When is the last time you just told him how much you love him? When is the last time you poured your soul out to him? My time is up. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the grace of God. Thank you for these lives. Thank you for what you will do. God, we pray that we will be lovers of Jesus in a passionate, fervent way. May we, oh God, not be accused of driving without our spiritual identification. In Jesus' name.